If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello, I am Randy Andrews. Today, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 comes out to theaters. In preparation for that very movie, today I want to talk about the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, some of the background information, as well as the movie soundtrack. All today, coming up on Soundtrack Alley. So today, first, I'd like to look at some of the character information about the movie Guardians of the Galaxy. The first character I'd like to look at is Drax the Destroyer. When Dave Bautista found out he got the role of Drax, he broke down in tears, even was overjoyed at getting a Marvel comic book movie role. He immediately signed up for the extra acting classes in order to prepare for the role. It took a makeup artist five hours daily to do the makeup and apply 18 prosthetic tattoo pieces onto Dave Bautista. Chris Pratt had revealed during that process, Bautista stood the entire time with his hands holding onto rails, which had tennis balls on them, with no complaints whatsoever. Eventually, the process was narrowed down to an average of three hours while 90 minutes were required to move or remove the makeup. Chris Pratt and Dave Bautista spent two and a half months training and rehearsing for their fight scene. On the Friday night before the Monday that they were scheduled to film the scene, James Gunn decided that the fight wouldn't work on camera, so he scrapped the entire fight sequence they had been practicing. Gunn also decided he wanted he wanted the entire fight to be filmed in one long shot with no cuts. As a result, uh, Chris Pratt and Batista only had a few hours to learn the choreography for the fight sequence, which was in the movie. According to Batista, it took them 22 takes to get it right on film. This story of how Drax had trouble with language really struck a chord with an autistic child. Dave Bautista reposted the story on his Facebook page, commenting, 
I have to say, this is pretty awesome and unexpected. In the comics, Drax the Destroyer was born Arthur Douglas, a man assassinated together with his family and wife by a Thanos experiment. Later, cosmic entity Kronos, Thanos' grandfather, captured Douglas' soul before he arrived to afterlife and placed him in a new and powerful body in order to stop Thanos' plans to get the Cosmic Cube, uh, which is called the Tesseract um, in Captain America, the First Avenger. As Arthur Douglas, he was father of Heather Douglas, superhero and moon dragon. Drax had the image of a red skull on his left arm. The crew even played a prank on Dave Bautista during the dance-off scene where Ronan was to accept the challenge, it's on, and dance, at which Batista had to improvise his own dance. It was so good that James Gunn made it as a bonus feature on the Blu-ray and DVD. Also, this is the second film to feature Vin Diesel and Dave Batista in starring roles together. The first that they were in a movie together was Riddick back in 2013. Another character I'd like to look at is Star-Lord. Chris Pratt apparently stole his Star-Lord costume from the set for the sole purpose of having it available so he could show up in costume to visit sick children in the hospital who might want to meet Star-Lord. James Gunn stated that Chris Pratt's audition was so good, he was prepared to offer him the role even if Pratt did not lose weight or get in shape in time. Gunn had joked that he was willing to CGI a six-pack on Pratt's body. However, Pratt asked Gunn to give him six months to lose 50 pounds, and he ended up losing 60 pounds. According to James Gunn, Star-Lord's obscene gesture was an improv by Chris Pratt. The scene where Peter drops the orb during the collector scene was also not scripted. According to the commentary, Chris Pratt accidentally dropped the orb during filming, but remained in character through the whole thing, so it stayed in the final film. James Gunn had confirmed via Twitter that Peter Quill's ship in the film is named the Milano. Now, that is actually named after Alyssa Milano, who was Peter Quill's childhood crush. Can you blame him? The cassette player used by Peter Quill was a Sony TPS-L2. It was the first personal cassette player released in 1979. It was originally called the Soundabout, then changed to Walkman. Uh, Zoe Zaltana nearly broke Chris Pratt's ribs while filming a fight sequence. During training, Pratt and Saldana wore protective gear so they could actually hit each other. However, when the day came to the s- film the scene, Pratt forgot to wear his protective gear, and he didn't tell Saldana about it, because he thought that she'd hold back if she knew. So Saldana, under the impression that he was wearing the gear, uh, kicked him square in the ribs, which made Pratt fall to the ground. According to Pratt, he had a bruise for the remainder of filming. Chris Pratt, he also ad-libbed a lot of his lines, including the Blacklight and Jackson Pollock painting jab, as you can 
here, right here. Your ship is filthy. Oh, she has no idea. Find a black light? Place would look like a Jackson Pollock painting. You got issues, Quill. Chris Pratt went on to do some very strict training regimen and diet for six months and dropped those 60 pounds, eventually getting a six-pack for his shirtless scenes. Chris Pratt said that it was a lot of hard work, almost torturous, but when he was filming his shirtless scenes and saw the playback on the monitor, he felt the, the effort was well worth it. It was extremely exciting to see the best possible physical version of himself. Chris Pratt thought it was extremely important to have the physicality of a comic book hero to play Star-Lord. Growing up, he had always been fascinated with the anatomy of comic book heroes, and he would always draw them as very cut and ripped, and felt he had to appear similar in order to do the role justice. He was 35 years old when he starred in the movie, and Harrison Ford, who played Han Solo in Star Wars, was also 35 when he played the role in Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope. Star-Lord and Han Solo are kind of the same kind of space movie stock character. Uh, in the episode of Parks and Recreation, the end of the conversation between the characters Ben Wyatt and Andy Dwyer uh, is heard um, regarding like the characters Ben Scott, or the actors Ben Scott and Chris Pratt. Uh, Wyatt is heard saying, and all you did was stop drinking beer? To which Dwyer responds, yeah, and I lost like 60 pounds. And this was direct reference to his weight loss that he had prepared for his role as Peter Quill or Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy. Peter Quill calls one of the Korath guards a Ninja Turtle. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was released on August 8th of, that, of 2014, shortly after the film was released. And so an ad for the film released when it returned to the number one spot at the box office after the Turtles held the spot for two straight weeks. And so uh, <laughs> the line, take that Ninja Turtle, and uh, it was just a funny uh, point. Um, in Parks and Recreation, another episode, Chris Pratt's character calls himself the luckiest man in the galaxy. And uh, another thought is when we first see Barit, uh, aboard the Milano, she's wearing the t-shirt young Peter was wearing when he was abducted from Terra. So another character I'd like to look at real briefly uh, is Vin Diesel. He recorded all his lines in several different languages, including Russian, Mandarin, Spanish, Portuguese, German, and French, so they could use his real voice in the film around the world. According to Vin Diesel, his performance as Groot helped him through a dark time in his life. He was dealing with the loss of his best friend and Fast and the Furious co-star, Paul Walker. It was the first time I came back to dealing with human beings after dealing with death. So playing a character who celebrates life in the way Groot does was very nice. James Gunn would uh, keep a pile of old or of little Play-Doh containers on the set if someone did an especially amazing job that day, whether it was an actor, a grip, a stuntman, or even a personal assistant, he or she would get a canister of Play-Doh. 
Gunn said that he gave out like 40 containers over the course of the entire shoot. And uh, <laughs> he said, I love the smell of Play-Doh. Opening a new container and smelling it puts me in a creative, childlike place. And who doesn't love playing with Play-Doh? James Gunn reasoned that the usage of songs from the 70s would help ground to reality and provide fun for the juxtaposition uh, for the different characters in the film. In an interview, he revealed that he had compiled a list of hit songs, which appear in the Billboard charts during this time, and narrowed it down to 120 to be considered for use in the film. It helped Gunn entirely throughout the production, as some scenes were either filmed around the music as it played in the background, or it served as inspiration for him to write a scene around the track. One of James Gunn's favorite songs by Jackson 5 is I Want You Back, and he was delighted to get a chance to feature it in the film. According to James Gunn, uh, Star-Lord's ship, the Milano, is based on a hot rod. Its environment is reminiscent of Earth and has a tangible quality, mechanical with chrome and leather and a muscle car look. James Gunn also stated several times that Rocket was a big, if not the main reason, he wanted to make the movie. In fact, when it was confirmed that the film was a hit, Gunn put a heartfelt thank you letter online specifically thanking everyone for letting a raccoon make them a little more human. According to James Gunn, Ronin's ship, the Dark Aster, is designed after a mausoleum. It's minimal, brutal, a stark, gray, colorless world devoid of any set dressing whatsoever, and relying purely on its heavy, concrete-like architecture to convey its tone and function. James Gunn wanted to have Rom the Space Knight pop up in the movie, but was unable to do so because Marvel didn't have the rights to use the character. It's currently being owned by Hasbro, and so he wasn't able to do it. On James Gunn's official Facebook page, uh, a member of the official page called the film the best science fiction film since Star Trek 2009. Zoe Zaldana, who plays Gamora, played Lieutenant Uhura in Star Trek. And Chris Pratt even had auditioned for Captain Kirk, but Chris Pine was cast. Star-Lord's Blaster, I love this, this little tidbit, Star-Lord's Blaster is reminiscent of the ones used in Disney's The Black Hole, and you can go back in my archive to hear that episode. James Gunn's brother, Sean, who did the on-set acting for Rocket, improvised the line, a bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. Sean Gunn and James worked really well with excellent communication. There was no nepotism on the set, they were focused on making the movie. Uh, the, there was motion reference for Rocket Raccoon, and that was, of course, Sean Gunn. He was a Gilmore Girls alumni as well. Uh, Dave Bautista had pet Sean Gunn when he was in motion ref for Rocket during the end of the movie. Those two brothers were great to each other. Everyone needs to check out the interview from Daydream Instruction Manual, episode 19. It turned out really good. And this is how we like to cross-promote 
for other podcasts on the Podcast Arcade Network. Uh, Sean Gunn took a gray suit, a gray tracksuit from the set of Guardians 2, and there's a little raccoon patch on the suit. And Sean Gunn said in the interview that Guardians 2 is the most favorite of his to work on. Now let's talk about Rocket Raccoon. When arrested, Rocket's attributes list his known associates, Groot and Lilla. Lady Lilla is a sentient otter and soulmate to Rocket in the Marvel Universe. Prior to release, Bill Mantlo, the comic book writer who created Rocket Raccoon and has been permanently hospitalized due to the severity of a crippling traffic accident in 1992, was granted a private screening by Marvel Entertainment and Walt Disney Pictures. According to his brother, Michael Mantlo, Bill was pleased with the adaption, which credits him by name as the character's creator, and considered the occasion a happy day for him and his family. According to the filmmakers, Rocket Raccoon in this film is a unique product of experimentation. He's a little animal who was taken and experimented on and pulled apart and put back together again, and implanted with cybernetics, and he's half machine and half raccoon. And he's gnarled, miserable, and he's angry. Because there's nothing else like him, and that's something not easy to be. At one point, Quill calls Rocket Ranger Rick, and that's a reference to a long-running children's nature magazine which featured a cartoon raccoon with that name. Before the final big battle scene, the Guardians are all together in a circle, and one by one they stand up and verbally commit to join Quill's mission. When Rocket stands up, he distinctly performs what is known in the Trek universe as the Picard Maneuver. Rocket stands up with both hands or paws and tugs the bottom of his uniform uh, top, presumably to ensure a nice, crisp fit. It's unknown if this was an, the intentional nod to Star Trek or just viewing audience, but most Picard fans likely caught this in the movie. Uh, here's some of the music facts regarding Guardians of the Galaxy. According to James Gunn, the film's soundtrack is composed mainly of 1970s and 80s songs, as they're part of Quill's memories of Earth. Uh, the music is one of those touchstones. We have to remind us that Quill is a real person who's planet Earth, who's just like you and me, except that he's in this big outer space adventure. The soundtrack album, Awesome Mix Volume 1, reached one of the U.S. Billboard 200 chart, the first film soundtrack ever to reach number one without a single original song. It was also nominated at the 2015 Grammy Awards for Best Soundtrack. The opening cave scene was originally written around Hooked on a Feeling, but James Gunn felt Come and Get Your Love worked far better. Cherry Bomb was actually played on set as the characters made their epic entrance before the final battle to help them get into character. I like this point. Tyler Bates composed the original score before the filming process began, so it could be played on set to also help the actor's performance in certain scenes. Another point with Cherry Bomb, it's also the name of the band from the movie Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck appears in the end of credit scene, 
and was the first movie based off a comic, Marvel comic. So here's that little clip. What do you let it lick you like that for? Gross. Yeah, it burns going down. The sales of Hooked on a Feeling uh, shot up by 700% after the release of the film's first trailer, which prominently featured the song. It was also the highest growing, grossing film for the summer of 2014 in North America. It became the first August release to do so, since box office figures were regularly tab tabulated in the mid-70s. James Gunn had stated on his Facebook page that unlike most films, Tyler Bates would write some of the score in advance, so the director could film to the music. And James Gunn, he wanted to use the song Top of the World by Greek Fire, a rock band from his native St. Louis, in the film, but ultimately nixed the idea in favor of an all 1970s soundtrack. The song would later appear in trailers for another Marvel film, which is Big Hero 6. Uh, the mid credit scene where Groot dances to I Want You Back was animated using footage of James Gunn dancing privately to the song. Uh, another Howard the Duck reference is that this is Howard the Duck's second cinematic appearance, exactly 28 years and one day after Howard the Duck was released. Besides Howard's cameo, the song Cherry Bomb is heard during the film, and Cherry Bomb, of course, was the name of that band in the 1986 film. Not a very good film. On October 21st, Marvel announced that the mixtape from the film would re be released on audio cassette later on November 17th until December 31st. So there were actually three soundtracks released for this film. There was the Tyler Bates score, an album of the songs on Quill's mixtape, and a deluxe compilation of the two albums. The mixtape album was actually given a limited release on cassette, and the first cassette released by the Walt Disney Group since 2003, and the cassette version also included a digital download version of the album, which is pretty cool. Let's get into some of the comic facts uh, regarding the film, including some cameos that actually happened. Benico Del Toro's uncredited cameo as the collector in Thor The Dark World was actually written to set the stage for this film. The Collector's residence in the film on the space station Nowhere, and in the comics, Nowhere is the base for the Guardians of the Galaxy. When the Guardians are negotiating with the Collector and the holograms of the Infinity Stones uh, sisters are shown, both the Aether and the Tesseract from the Thor movies can be seen. Uh, there's features of the first on-screen appearance of the Celestial's severed head. The Celestials are an ancient race of godlike beings who watch over and change the universe for both good and evil. If you want to get some background on some of these characters of the Celestials, you might want to check out my uh, sketch blog called scomicscratchings.wordpress.com 
to see some of the drawings that I've done for these very celestials, and you'll get some background information on what they exactly were. So moving on, along with Adam Warlock's cocoon and Howard the Duck in his holding cell, you can also see Ant-Man's helmet on the table in the collector's room when he walks past his two female slaves. Uh, also, Cosmo, a telepathic dog from the early Soviet space missions, and he appears as a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy in the comics. He makes a cameo during the collector scenes on Nowhere. The one cameo of Stan Lee originally was to feature him as one of the collector's box trophies, giving Groot the middle finger, and Disney execs didn't like it, and so James Gunn changed it so that Stan Lee would be an alien Casanova. Uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy was first published in January 1969 with a different team. The new team in the film is also composed of characters who existed in the Marvel comics prior to even the first Star Wars movie. Here's the rundown. Star-Lord appeared in Marvel Preview number 4 back in 1976. Uh, Rocket Raccoon uh, appeared in Marvel Preview number 7 in 1976. Uh, Gamora appeared in Strange Tales uh, number 180 in 1975. Drax the Destroyer appeared in Iron Man number 55 in 1973 and Groot appeared in Tales to Astonish, number 13, in 1960. Uh, the backstory behind the Ravagers abducting Quill, Yondu, and the Ravagers were hired by Peter's father to pick up Peter on Earth, the night Meredith Quill died, and bring Peter to his father, but they reneged. In the film, uh, Ronan the Accuser is an admiral serving under Thanos. This combines his classic Marvel Comics character of a top-ranking military governor with his Marvel Ultimate Comics portrayal as an ally of Thanos. This film identifies the collector's assistant, Ophelia Lovibond, as Karina. In the comics, the collector's daughter was named Karina Walters. Uh, there was a seven-pointed flame emblem of the Ravagers that they had on their clothes was originally the emblem of the original seven members of the 2008 Guardians of the Galaxy Marvel comic run, uh, which the movie takes its inspiration from. The titular character of Howard the Duck appeared, of course, in the post-credit sequence, and Howard the Duck appeared in the comics several years um, as an individual character and would now and again show up with the character Man-Thing. During Rocket's lineup, he's known as alias Spy Bell, known in the comics as Quasar or Captain Marvel. She's also the lover of Drax's daughter. When Groot and Rocket capture Quill and Gamora, Rocket tells Groot to get him, according or referring to Quill. Despite the use of a male pronoun, Groot mistakenly aims for Gamora instead, who is a female. This implies that Groot doesn't even understand gender, and may in fact be a genderless species. 
Several characters talk about Kevin Bacon in Footloose. Uh, Bacon appeared in leading villain roles in both Marvel Comics films like X-Men First Class and then James Gunn film Super. Before she was announced to play Nebula, Karen Gillian had been rumored to play a sword-wielding bounty hunter called Angela from the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book, who is like Red Sonia in space. Due to the fact that Angela has red hair, wears a gold bikini, and wields a sword, the character Red Sonia, who appeared in Marvel Comics, uh, created by Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith, was known also to have red hair, wearing a bikini and fighting with a sword. Uh, this, of course, didn't happen. Uh, Karen Gillian ended up playing Nebula. The hunter-seeker assassination device from Dune is considered to be an influence behind Yondu's arrow. I wanted to bring this out since Tim Benson's favorite film is Dune. Uh, this film features two of the four Doctor Who stars who have had roles in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Karen, Karen Gillian and Peter Serafinowicz, who were in the series as well as Chris Eccleston from Thor The Dark World and Toby Jones, uh, Captain America First Avenger, as well as Winter Soldier. Uh, the Yondu, Yondu and the Ravagers called the planet Earth Terra. Uh, coincidentally, this is how it's called in Italian, but its inhabitants are not called Terran, but terrestrial. Uh, there's some, some of the uh, cameos that appeared. Uh, Nathan Fillion's voice uh, was the voice of the blue alien Groot picks up by the nostrils in the kiln. The collector's collection includes various species, a Chitari from the Avengers, a dark elf from Thor the Dark World, a cocoon holding Adam Warlock, cosmic being who became a member of the Guardians, uh, and at the post credit scene, the cocoon is now seen empty. A dog uh, in the CCCP, uh, which is the former USSR, with a cosmonaut suit who snarls at Rocket. This, of course, is Cosmo, a Russian dog who became a member of the Guardians and is constantly on bad terms with Rocket Raccoon. And, of course, Howard the Duck makes his appearance in a case. Uh, also, a slime creature from James Gunn's previous film, Slither, is seen in the film. Uh, in Ronan the Accuser's first scene, when he kills the Zendarian with his hammer, the blood flows down into the pool where Ronan first awoke and is the same color as the liquid that Ronan emerged from, revealing that he sleeps fully immersed in the blood of his enemies. And this is a very comic book type situation that Ronan would have been found in dealing with. Uh, the only difference is that Ronan dies in the film. Spoiler alert. Uh, but in the comics, he's constantly in it, and he he doesn't die. There are just six Infinity Gems. Uh, the soul, time, mind, space, power, and reality. Each one gives a special power to its protector. The soul gem. Now, this is really good for you comic book uh, aficionados. And if you're not uh, familiar with a lot of the comic book lore, 
Uh, this is a rundown of it. The Soul Gem allows the holder to manipulate, steal, collect, and alter any soul, living or dead. The souls may also be captured to the inner universe called Soul World. The Time Gem allows total control over the past, present, and future. The Time Gem also allows the holder to travel in time, change the age of living beings in any direction, and trap enemies in eternal time loops, a.k.a. think of Doctor Strange. At the full potential, the Time Gem is capable of granting omniscience. The Mind Gem. It allows universal telepathy. The Mind Gem allows holders to read and control the mind of anyone, or everyone. The Mind Gem also allows the holder to project thought to any living being in the universe. Next, we have the Space Gem. It grants the holder the ability to exist in any location or all locations at one time. The holder of the Space Gem also has the ability to move any object anywhere throughout reality, rearrange space, and teleport to any place in the universe. At full potential, the Space Gem is capable of granting also omniscience. Um, next, we have the Power Gem. It allows total access to all the power and energy in existence. This includes all power that has ever or will ever exist. The Power Gem has the ability to boost the effects of other gems, and it's capable of duplicating almost any physical superhuman ability. At the full potential, the Power Gem is capable of granting omnipotence. Finally, the Reality Gem. It allows the fulfillment of any wish even if it contradicts any universal laws, which is the ability to destroy reality with generation of the paradox. All right, so we've come down to a few lasting things. One of the funny things that actually happened uh, was when Quill and the rest of the team first arrive at the collector's gallery. As the collector turns around to face them, you can briefly see Howard sitting in his glass box in the background above, and just to the right of the Collector's head. When entering the kiln, Quill refers to Groot as Giving Tree, foreshadowing Groot's fate in the film. The Giving Tree is a 1964 book by Shel Silverstein about a tree that gives everything it can to its human friend, eventually sacrificing itself for the man all out of friendship and love. The basic strategy the heroes employ with their spaceships, trying to hold off the enemy before he makes it to the ground, was inspired by Space Invaders from 1981. In the movie, Thanos is looking for the Infinity Gems. The same plot was depicted in the limited series The Thanos Quest, where Thanos gets all the gems, becoming a god. Now, this was one awesome miniseries that showed you the depth of how smart Thanos actually is and how he was able to acquire each of the Infinity Stones as he hunted for them. Each Marvel superhero movie has a main theme. Uh, we look at Iron Man and its sequels, that it revolves around weaponry and technology. The Incredible Hulk 
We look at mutation and nuclear power. Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, we talk about experimentation and espionage. Thor, deal with mythology and religion. Guardians of the Galaxy, extraterrestrial life and cosmic beings. With Ant-Man, we look at telepathy and control of animals. And Doctor Strange, look at magic and witchcraft. The Avengers, alien invasion. Avengers Age of Ultron, artificial intelligence. In the comic series crossover of the 1970s, Thanos is in search of all of the Infinity Stones to appease his lover, Death, whom he has only seen a glimpse of in the story. With all the gems, he would destroy the entire universe for his lover, Death. He is thwarted by Adam Warlock, who is dead and trapped in the Soul Gem, and is called back to reality to stop the mad god, Thanos. By leaving the Soul Gem, he grasps Thanos and turns him to stone, thus averting the destruction of the universe. While losing his lover, Death, in the cosmic world, or the comic world of the Soul Gem, there is a world which is inhabited by all the beings absorbed by the gem. In it, all the enemies who have been absorbed are friends. Gamora also has a black mask around her eyes, similar to what uh, is on the Australian Blue Healer. According to Go Compare, this movie holds the world record for the highest number of deaths. Yes, the number is 83,000. 871. That's a very large number. So we've looked at a f several facts about the film and the actors in it, and even the comic connections that are known worldwide. If you haven't read Dan Abnett's run of Guardians of the Galaxy, you need to pick that up and enjoy all the fun that is found in those books. So I've got a few cues I'd like to play for us today from the actual score by Tyler Bates. Tyler Bakes worked with the complex score for this film, and it was really well put together. First, I'd like to play a couple of cues from the beginning of the film, specifically Morag and Ronan's theme. Here we get the mystery of Morag with Star-Lord searching for the old city. Then, with Ronan's theme as the Kree rebel leader, he commands his presence through the score. I love how Tyler Bates gives us this ominous feel for his theme and the militaristic way that he presents himself and his evil intent. So now, let's play those cues of Morag and Ronan's theme.
Next, I'd like to play three cues that tie in to each other quite nicely. First, I have Sanctuary, then The Kiln Escape, and finally, Don't Mess With My Walkman. I love how these three action cues give us a sense of adventure and heighten our feeling of excitement with the strings and horns that weave throughout the music of Tyler Bates' score. So let's play these cues.
Finally, we come to an end of another great episode of Soundtrack Alley. I'm glad you all could tune in to the show on your favorite podcast app. You can email me at soundtrackalley at yahoo.com or find my show on iTunes or Podbean. Also go over and like my Facebook page or even like the Podcast Arcade Network on Facebook as well. There are many other shows on there that are great to listen to, so again, thanks for tuning into this. I've got several more episodes this month with different movie releases coming out, so you can really look forward to that. Um, I'd also like to thank Jillian Orwall for my introduction to my episode today. Um, Just started using that intro, and it's really enjoyable to to use, so I want to thank her for that. Uh, Lastly, to end the show, I'll be playing the last three cues for this episode. They're entitled The Collector, Ballad of the Nova Corps, and finally, Guardians United. I feel that Tyler Bates does an excellent job with these cues and really brings the adventure to life with the scoring of the film. In a future episode, I want to examine the full scope of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how each movie does indeed have a cue that highlights the theme of each movie. Many may not have one, but I hope I can enlighten people to that simple fact. So until next week, enjoy and happy listening.
something good, something bad, a bit of both. We'll follow your lead, Star-Lord. Bit of both. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.